0: My name is Matthew Taylor. I'm the chief executive of the RSA here in London. And in this podcast, I'm putting my guests on the spot. There are really huge questions that if we choose to face them, we could answer well and that could move us forward. Throughout this series, I'm asking leading experts, renowned thinkers and global leaders to offer me one big idea that could help shape the new era we're moving into. What I hope is that this crisis gives us the opportunity
1: to update our worldview, move to a different kind of ideology.
0: This is Bridges to the Future from the RSA. As we move into the final torrid chapter of Brexit, some of us feel sadness about moving further away from Europe. We liked the sense that we had a stake in the south of France or the beaches of Italy and Greece. Perhaps we admired the egalitarian traditions of the Nordic countries. But might it be that the country we will most regret divorcing from is the one we still obsessively think about as a historical enemy? Germany. Arguably now the strongest hope left for liberal democracy. Well, that's part of the argument made in his new book by my guest today on Bridges to the Future, John Kampfner. Hi, John.
1: Hi, Matthew. Thank you very much for having me.
0: Now, John, I've known you for many years. You're a journalist, you're a writer, but you've also run organisations. How do you introduce yourself to people?
1: Goodness, I never quite know, but I now just call myself author and broadcaster. But yeah, I was until a couple of years ago. I'd set up the body to coordinate the UK's creative industries, which is one of the strongest points of this country. But I wanted just to get back into writing and to being able to be more outspoken in my thoughts.
0: Hi, you're being slightly modest. I mean, your career was amazing. You It ranges from kind of writing very influential books about Tony Blair's wars through to being one of the instigators of the Margate Art Gallery. It's fascinating looking at, as I've known you all these years, fascinating knowing all the turns in your career. Is, is there a, another secret ambition that you're harbouring?
1: Oh, world domination. But (laughs) no, apart from that, no. I mean, I think I'm in the fortunate position at this stage of my career of only wanting to do things that really excite me. And probably the thing on my tombstone, I would like to be the Turner Contemporary in Margate, because as a journalist, you can be gobby all the time. You can come up with ideas. You can hopefully influence the public debate, but actually physically to build something. It's the vanity of the wannabe architect. And that was exciting. But I think, in terms of what drives me intellectually, if that's not too pretentious a term, it is the state of the world. It always has been. And it's those great, big, momentous, shifting sands. And goodness knows we are right in the middle of a whole lot of them at the moment.
0: Well, that takes us neatly to your book. So. John, before we get into the core of the book, the thesis at the heart of it, just tell us, where did the book come from? Can you remember the particular moment when you decided, I'm going to write a book about Germany?
1: Well, no, there wasn't a sort of moment, dreadful for listeners to think, a sort of moment in the shower, nor any particular eureka moment. It was more of a slow burn. And I think for me, it was unfinished business on a number of fronts. I started my journalism way back when, in the mid-80s, as a trainee correspondent for Reuters in the small town otherwise known as Bonn. And then I moved from there to be the Telegraphs first, and turned out obviously to be last, correspondent in the GDR, the German Democratic Republic, as it was then. I still have my very quaint press card from those days. And after that, I moved to Moscow and then back to Britain. But there was always something about Germany. It may be partly my family's story. My father was a Jewish refugee, forced to flee incredibly dangerously after Hitler had already invaded Czechoslovakia, as it was then in thirty nine. And some of his family died in the camps. He landed up in Singapore and met my Protestant mum in the military hospital there. So it's this sort of curious relationship he had With Germany when I was in Bonn, all those years later, 45 years later, he came to visit me and it was his first time back in that country. And I still remember his impressions of the time. So I just thought, after all these years of having been very close to the country, I want to reacquaint myself with the country to compare and trust it now with what it was then. But also, there was the enormous identity crisis that. So many of us feel about what has happened to our once great country, Britain, mired not just in Brexit, but in the aftermath of Brexit and so much more.
0: Yeah, there's a kind of interesting kind of rhythm to the book in you describe Germany, as I'm sure you'll explain, in very positive terms. And then occasionally you say, Well, no, this isn't perfect, this is a problem, and then you say, But even so it's still better than Britain.
1: Well, I think that accurately sums it up. I mean, some people have said, Well, there's a mismatch between the title of the book and what you actually say, because I hope what it is saying to readers is Here is a not just fascinating country, but here is a country that for all its many problems is doing good. And this is why. But it is also a warts and all book. There's many, many criticisms in it. So somebody once said to me, well, then why do you give it such a bald title such as why the Germans do it better? To which I responded, I don't think a book would catch the eye so much if, if you said why the Germans do it mostly better much of the time it wouldn't have quite worked as well. So it's a much more binary title to a book that I hope is very sympathetic, but also nuanced. And
0: that takes us to the question we ask everybody on this Bridges to the Future podcast. So, John Kampfner, what's your big idea for the new era we're surely moving
1: into? It is for countries to work more closely together. It is that bombast and overclaiming, which is a British disease is one of the most undermining phenomena. And by contrast, you look at Germany, particularly personified by Angela Merkel, 15 years in office. It tries so very hard not to punch above its weight, but yet it is not just an efficient, competent country, that much we always knew, but it has also developed incredible social cohesion and social compassion, and most of all, social responsibility.
0: You talk a lot about Merkel in the book. So let's start with her, because in many ways, she personifies a lot of what you want to say about Germany. And fascinatingly, I think you met her quite early on in her political career you talk about her with immense kind of warmth. And again, although I don't think you mention Boris Johnson that often in the book, one is often reminded of the contrasts between the German leader and our own. So tell us a bit about what's special about
1: Merkel. Well, I met her at the start of 1990. And it's one of those moments in your life, we all have them, when you think, crikey, that was a mistake. Why didn't I get all her contact details and more to the point? Develop those contacts over the years because within 10 years of meeting her, she had had her big bust up with Helmut Kohl and was ready to take over the party. But then she came across as, and I don't think she's changed, as a self effacing, incredibly determined, bright, but not remotely showy political advisor to the, in that brief period when East Germany, the GDR, had got rid of communism in a peaceful way and there was every possibility that a Tiananmen-style solution might have ended up in Berlin, and it didn't, which was a testament to everyone. So we were in this transition period. Nobody knew what was going to happen. German unification, month by month, became inevitable. That it happened in 11 months after the fall of the Berlin Wall was nothing short of remarkable. But in those 11 months, or at least in the first six months of those in nineteen ninety. East Germans, with the first breaths of freedom, were trying to chart a fascinating new course. And she was advisor to the first prime minister in the GDR. And they were trying to work out the West German system, how much to take, how much not to take. In the end, one was absorbed by the other. And then you fast forward, she was adopted by Helmut Kohl, as he called her my girl, and promoted her in the cabinet to environment minister and and other positions. Then there was a sort of brutus moment when he was embroiled in corruption, he was dumped, she was adopted, but really sort of at arm's length by this very old fashioned party, the CDU. I mean, she was everything that a CDU leader shouldn't not be. She was a woman, she was a divorcee, she was a Protestant, and she was a scientist. And it is quite remarkable that she took over the party and that she won in 2005 against Gerhard Schröder. And she has steered this enormous ship through some extraordinary crises in the ensuing 15 years.
0: One of the things that I found fascinating about knowing more about her for your book is that she sometimes absolutely captures the mood, gets the words absolutely right. She is the mother of the nation. Now, other times, she demonstrates a complete tin ear. I mean, she's, <laughs> she's quite interesting in that regard, isn't she? You describe moments of kind of catastrophe for her in her kind of media presentation. I think, for example, a conversation she had with a young migrant on a children's television programme once, but then other moments when she speaks with a kind of emotional intelligence that you wish other leaders had.
1: Well, it's one of the great contrasts between Germany and the Anglo-Saxon world, which is actually rhetoric, is not remotely prized. There are very, very few parliamentary moments. Parliament is almost like a sort of admin office, and people get on with the work, they get on with reforming, introducing and reforming legislation. All the important stuff gets done in parliamentary committees. So it could not be more different to the sort of superannuated public school debating chamber that the House of Commons is, in which everything is down to how you can best your opponent on the other side, how it's all about a fine choice of words. And yes, occasionally, in some of the great debates over the Iraq war, or over great national moments, that ability to give great speeches in the UK does turn shivers down the spine, does make you think, yeah, this is a fascinating place. But most of the time, the problem with, and we could go on forever about, the defects which have become so stark to me since spending more time in Germany, the defects in pretty much every aspect of the structure of British politics and of public life. But here it's just, it's sort of made for Merkel and Merkel is made for it. You just get on with it. She doesn't do public very much. She doesn't do it particularly well. But at the start of COVID, She made one TV appearance, and again, she barely raised her voice. It was all sotto voce, but it was perfect because she said, this is what I know, this is what my scientists know, this is what I don't know, this is what my scientists don't know. I can tell you all, this is all going to be incredibly difficult, incredibly grim, we're going to do something that I never thought I or any European was ever going to have to do, which is to close borders. We're going to have to restrict your movements. We're going to have to track you on an app, which for anybody brought up in the GDR and the Stasi, let alone the horrors of Nazism was absolute anathema. She was saying to her people, look, it's going to be horrible, but we've got to stick together. And contrast that to the absolute nonsense that has taken place In Parliament and with Boris Johnson, every single development in COVID was, I'm so proud to announce, a world beating, X or Y. And that X or Y, whether it's an app, whether it's the provision of PPE, whether it's quarantine, always within three or four days went completely pear shaped, had to be abandoned, had to be radically altered, we ran out of this or that. I mean, the absolute contrast, 180 degrees between the bluster and hopelessness of the British approach to COVID and the quiet, unflamboyant German way could not be more stark.
0: This dislike of rhetoric, John, this links to one of the other themes of your book, which is that arguably one of the tragedies for Britain is an exaggerated sense of our own wonderfulness and past and a kind of shrill arrogance. Whereas ironically, in a sense, one of the things that makes Germany as strong as it is, is its acute understanding of the tragedies of its past, primarily, of course, Nazism, But also the tragedy of the country being separated and that almost everything in Germany, and you've just given an example of Merkel talking about how she found it particularly difficult to make the COVID restrictions because it reminded her of Eastern Europe. But so much still that happens in Germany has an echo, has a reflection, has a kind of sense of we must not go back to the past of extremes and the past of divisions.
1: Yeah, you're right. And it's interesting, until a couple of years ago, just a quick reflection on the UK, and then I'll come to Germany. I mean, Germans love everything that's traditional about Britain, all the clichés. There was a really great exhibition of Britishness and what the Germans think of it in Bonn a year or two ago. Really well done. And it was everything from football to the Avengers and the royal family and, and all of that. But most of all, it was history and it was heritage. And in Germany, that is so poisoned. And poisonous because even celebrating eighteenth, nineteenth century, you can do it with writers and painters and music. But even historical discussions of the political realm pre-First World War are difficult here. So Germany really struggles to look back, and when you are not able or emboldened to look back, what do you gotta do? You've got to look forward. And I'm sorry if that sounds trite, but it's true. And so Germany is in this constant sense of, are we doing it right? Are we doing it well enough? What's the next thing? Whereas Britain is absolutely trapped in this "Rule Britannia paralysis, in which we use history as a balm to hide over all the defect of our present and the future. And any attempt to say to people in Britain, look, for God's sake, we know how amazingly heroic Britain was and Britons were in the two world wars. But by the way, please don't forget what the Russians and the French and the Americans and others did too. But in a way, it paralyzes us in Britain. It sort of stops us from being much more rigorous in saying, this isn't working, this isn't working, this we've got to change, this we've got to ditch. And any attempt to do that in Britain is portrayed as unpatriotic, which is just ridiculous. And Tony Blair tried... And you were at the center of that, Matthew. You know, with hindsight, everybody knows that, God, if he had shown more courage in his modernization agenda and tried not to look over his shoulder as much as he did in the last years of the 20th and first years of the 21st century, a lot might have been different. And now the impetus is completely in the other direction. But with Germany, it's the other way. But interestingly also, the war in a curious way also paralyzes Germany in that it is so still. And this is what my book is trying to do and challenge Germans. And it challenges Germans as much as it does Britons. It's saying to Germans, yes, the way you deal with your own history, the way you overcome, you analyse your own history, particularly since the 60s, not so much in the first 20 years after the Second World War, is remarkable. You've turned it into a sort of piece of national pride. But that, in and of itself, does not necessarily equip you for the future because the future and the American election is going to be absolutely crucial to this. But with the extraordinarily dangerous and anti democratic Trump, with the huge strategic threats, long term strategic threats of China, and with the dangerous adolescent disruptiveness of Russia and Putin. Germany, more than any other country, stands as this bulwark for liberal democracy. And you Germans can't just sit there and say, nothing to do with us, Gov, or we're waiting for the Americans, or our constitution won't allow us to do this and that and the other. If you're going to stand up for stuff, you're going to enter the grey zone of difficult decisions. And Germany's not quite there yet. But if there's one message for Germans, it's, you know, it is your time and don't be scared.
0: Yeah, and I want to come back to that in a moment. But in terms of the book, one of the things that kind of surprised me reading through the book was that I think before I picked it up, I would have said, well, what I know about Germany is that it's objectively much more successful than Britain, objectively one of the most successful countries in the world. But yet, actually, you show in the book that levels of poverty are quite high in Germany, that Germany is not as bad as the UK. That's a phrase one can use over and over again. But it has quite high levels of inequality, that although there's big change now, Germany's record on the climate is not as strong as you might imagine given one's association with it and with the Green Party that it's got problems about industry, about being innovative enough in the tech sector. So on the one hand the book offers some correctives to my assumption that Germany was objectively the best and way ahead. On the other hand what the book shows again and again is your fondness for the character of Germany. That's what you keep taking us back to, is the kind of patience, the commitment to trying to work together, the quality of social life, the wonderful details like the fact that people who live in kind of shared flats or whatever each have to take it in turns to have a week of the year where they dedicate to improving the quality of the shared environment so in a sense i came away with more questions about germany's objective success but more fascinated about this kind of character quality
1: that's really interestingly put i mean on the objective success point no absolutely i mean i could talk for hours on what doesn't work in Germany. <laughs> to use the old adage, the trains absolutely do not run on time. One trip I did a few months ago, it was just before the, the lockdown, I took seven intercity trips, six of which were delayed by more than 20 minutes. And, you know, that's worse than Britain. And you know, things are wrong when people don't even complain. They were just shrugging their shoulders, the people in the carriage. There's a long saga with Berlin's airport. Should have opened ten years ago, hasn't is supposedly about to open now. Nobody quite believes it. A lot of things don't work in this country. Corporate corruption, regulation is poor, overexposure to China. You mentioned tech, you're absolutely right. I mean, you work from the assumption when you walk down the street that your 3G, 4G won't work, even in the center of Berlin, let alone the countryside. It's a shocker. That's why the whole Huawei thing is so sensitive here, because Germany's desperate, apparently, broadband speed is below Albania's. So there's a huge amount just on the sort of technocratic front that doesn't work. But in a way, we, to coin a phrase, we want our cake and eat it, when Germany is super efficient and builds brilliant cars, and the car industry is in trouble having been slow on electrification, and autonomous vehicles. But when everything's going well in Germany, we in Britain and other countries think it's being overweening, it's dangerous, we invoke all those sort of war metaphors and when things don't work we call it the sick man of europe and in a way it's somewhere between the two some things work and some things don't curiously with covid it's forcing germany to be more digitally savvy all the stuff with apps with cashless payments i mean before you would struggle you have to carry huge wadges of banknotes with you in germany Whereas in Britain, you've pretty much given up on that kind of thing. So on the tech side and on the practical side, there's lots wrong. But you're right. I mean, there is a sort of communitaire. In a way, it was sort of Blairism made good. But very much, I mean, Merkel is on the center right. So it's a curious mix of sort of one-nationism, communitarianism. It can go too far. You cite the sort of everybody has to chip in with cleaning the block of flats In many ways, it's good, but it also brings out the sort of rugged English individualist in me. Don't keep on telling me what to do. Don't snitch on your neighbours. I once had a note on my car in Bonn on my windscreen, beautiful envelope saying, dear respected neighbour, would you please clean your car as it's bringing down the reputation of the street? They can take this sort of we're all in it together, stuff too far. It's well-intentioned most of the time, but it can go too far. But there is that sense of we're only as strong as the weakest among our number. Bling and overt displays of wealth, with the exception of their cars, is really frowned upon. There is an accent on culture and particularly high culture and reading. I mean, a former German president has written books about philosophy you know, where would you get that in Britain? There is that sort of, I think the one word I would ascribe to all of it is seriousness. I
0: suppose I'm bound to say that our Prime Minister is a classicist, but let's not dwell on that. Before I kind of raise a couple of kind of challenges that the book left me with, tell us a bit about where you think Germany has got to with this incredible experiment or act of benevolence, which was the taking in of a million refugees, another critical moment for Merkel. I think, When you read about this from Britain, one day you'll read a positive account of integration and success and economic progress, and another day you'll read a rather different account of conflict. Where do you think it sits now?
1: Well, Britain and France, and obviously the United States being the ultimate immigrant country. Britain and France, for all the problems we've had with Windrush and France has had with Algeria and, and other places in the Maghreb, we became more multicultural at a much earlier stage. Germany was, until not so long ago, it had its guest workers, and that was a pretty poor system in which you did your work and then off you go. And they had very few rights and they certainly couldn't go for citizenship. That changed around the time of the millennium. But Germany was always a quite a monocultural and homogenous society. Now it feels very different. So it was a double challenge. And when, as we will remember, those awful, terrible photographs of children dead on beaches, and then these desperate and exploited boats taking people to Lampedusa and to the Greek islands. And then this train, this caravan of hundreds of thousands of the world's most dejected, traipsing their way through Southeast Europe. And then having barbed wire built against them, sprayed with tear gas, prevented from moving on in Hungary and Austria. Merkel was quite slow to understand what was happening. But then she said, well, we've got to let these people in. And she wasn't doing it in a sort of, again, there was no great bombast to this. She said, but what other choice do I have? And then she said, as a German, do you want me to build camps, which was obviously a deliberately toxic phrase. And having done that, having said, let them in or at least we're not going to stop them coming in you had these trains coming into munich station and this phrase the welcome culture and opinion polls showing that up to half of germans did some serious form of volunteering in those first few months it was extraordinary now of course that all became a bit poisoned the afd grew in power and is a very dangerous force although i think I think more than I hope, I think, I'm fairly sure, and polls suggested it's hit its high watermark and is receding, but still dangerous. And she took an enormous political risk. And you compare and contrast it to the mean-spiritedness of Sajid Javid a few years ago, pretty Patel now sending naval boats to intimidate the odd little bedraggled dinghy going between Calais and Dover. It's very, very different. And You know, it wasn't just they let them in and, you know, forgot about them. The integration attempts, the assimilation attempts, language training, up to a third before COVID, I haven't checked the figures since of the working age immigrants have got decent jobs still work in progress but that's pretty remarkable and it's been difficult but i just think it is one of the great moments
0: now john we're running out of time but i do want to ask a couple of questions that sprang to me when i finished the book and by the way we've only touched it i mean there's so much else that is there but the first one is i mean maybe it's a good thing that we do seem in britain finally becoming more kind of interested in germany because actually your book which is Gone down incredibly well and sold incredibly well. Congratulations on that. It's it's actually the second recent book that's sold well about Germany because there was James Hall's book a few years ago, A Very Short History of Germany. Now I'm kind of interested. you, You touch on the thesis that is really core to his book because, and maybe this is slightly crude, but his book basically says you have to understand Germany through one thing and one thing more than anything else, and that is that the west of Germany looks west is European, is of the Enlightenment, is committed to democracy, whereas the east of Germany looks east, is more martial in its culture, much less wedded to democracy. And in the end, the role that Germany will play all depends upon this dynamic between west and east. Now, maybe that was overplayed. Maybe I've overplayed it in describing it. Now, you touch on it, but I wouldn't say that you drive home the thesis in the same way. Do you think the horse was overstating it?
1: Well, um, first of all, you accurately describe it, Matthew, and I think it's a great book. By the way, I'd also add in Neil McGregor's book on Germany as well. And interestingly, there is, I wouldn't say there's a flood of new books, but there is a slow, steady trickle of books about Germany that are not about 1418 or 39 to 45. And yeah, I mean, I think it's a, a very good construct that James wrote and dwelt on, and it has a lot in it. And the fact that the word Prussia doesn't exist, you know, there is no Prussia, there are no Prussian things, although you do use it in cultural terms, is almost a nod to that militaristic side and Berlin in you know well before the 20th century was a sort of military garrison and things prussian were always equated with militarism which does feel very differently i also think there's a third germany which is bavaria and the south which quite often feels as much like northern italy and austria it has very much a sort of holy roman empire feel to it much more catholic than the rest of germany so, yeah, it is an amalgam of different countries. I, I don't quite buy it in terms of contemporary Germany. I meet as many people in Cologne, Dusseldorf, Bonn, Frankfurt, and other parts of western, western Germany, whose views I would find obnoxious and difficult, as I would in Berlin. I mean, obviously, Berlin is a very different island. And the problem with eastern Germany, the lands of the former GDR, Maybe to do with some of that, but it's also to do with the fact that you now have four or five generations who, until 1990, never knew any form of democracy. So it was no wonder that more of them proportionally would flock to the toxic embrace of the AFD.
0: Final question, John. In the end, isn't the future of Germany? completely tied up in the future of Europe in the sense that the big bet that Germany has made and one of the admirable elements of it is that it will influence the world primarily through leading the collection of nations in the European Union. But isn't the kind of other side of that to say that if the European Union project does not proceed, and I think the European Union people would probably say has had, a if this isn't a distaste of race, a good COVID crisis eventually in terms of, for example, creating new mechanisms to redistribute resources to support countries that have been particularly badly affected. But that if the European Union project was to go off the rails and Germany was to have to find its way to provide leadership in the world alone. It might be a more problematic picture. You talk about the ambivalence of Germany's relationship to Russia and to China, for example. So in terms of one's aspirations for Germany, as you put it, to be the kind of beacon of liberal democracy, this is surely dependent upon the European project as well.
1: It's dependent on that, and it's dependent on one other thing as well, Matthew. I mean, just on that, one of the sadnesses that Germany feels about Brexit, leaving aside the specifics of Brexit, is that in Britain... Germany has lost probably its closest ally in Europe Britain, Germany and the Netherlands perhaps absolutely not on everything by all means but by and large sore eye to eye on the big geostrategic things Oh yeah
0: well John I'd know that because I worked in number 10 when we would talk about the European team there would talk about planning for a summit and what we want to get out of it and invariably the conversation was well you know we're talking to the Germans about how it is we can do in the French I mean obviously they wouldn't have used a phrase like that but yeah I mean absolutely when I was in number 10 the starting assumption before European summits was, well, will be with the Germans.
1: Yeah, absolutely. And so they've lost that. And that disorientates them. You know, not only are they shocked about the result, they were far more shocked about the chaos that the result then led to in Britain and the lack of preparedness and also the sort of crazy hard Brexit, you know, no deal stuff that, that then followed. But they've sort of moved on from that now. They're not crying over that spilt milk. You know, Britain's gone and relations with Britain will never be the same again. No matter how much the Brits try and say, oh, we'll recreate them in other forums, Uh -uh. it's not going to happen. When you're out of the family, you're out of the family. And of course, they'll come together with us on certain things, particularly on defence. But we are out and emotionally, you know, we've divorced and that has emotional salience. So, you know, that is really, really important. Germany feels more disoriented in Europe. The relationship with France is now far more important than it ever was. And Germany and France just have to get on. It's pretty difficult because Merkel and Macron don't particularly get on. But there's another aspect to your introductory point, Matthew. It's not just Europe on which Germany depends. It's democracy. And... While countries like Britain and France would say the same thing, rightly so, they have their national traditions, their nation-state traditions to fall back on. Germany doesn't. Germany, without the post-1945 multinational, multipolar architecture is a very, very scared place. And that is why the single most important thing that is going to happen to Germany in the next six to 12 months is less actually the choice of Merkel's successor, vital though that will be. It's who's going to win in the White House in November and the chaos that that will bring, particularly between November and January. If Trump wins a second time, and Trump loathes Germany, and he particularly loathes Merkel and has given her nothing but grief ever since he came to power. Germans will feel incredibly rudderless, and they will see rightly how liberal democracy is being undermined from within. And then they'll have a choice to hunker down and try and will it away, or to try, and this is the hard bit with the how, to do something about it.
0: Well, I try not to editorialise too much in this podcast, but I can simply say let's just hope that events mean that that choice does not have to be made. John Kampfner, it's been fantastic talking to you. It was great reading why the Germans do it better. Thank you. Thank you, Matthew. That's it for this episode of Bridges to the Future. But we'll be back with more insights and analysis very soon. If you've enjoyed this podcast... Please tell someone about it, and we would really appreciate it if you took just two minutes to leave us a rating or review in your podcast app. And that's not it. The RSA is commissioning online events, essays, blog posts to help make sense of what's happening right now and in the months to come. Also, the RSA Fellowship is a global network of problem solvers. We'd love you to join our community today to stay connected, inspired, and motivated in the months ahead. You can learn more about the fellowship or the work that we're doing on the pandemic and the world after it by going to the rsa.org.uk or clicking the link in our bio. But for now, thanks from me, Matthew Taylor, and my producer, Craig Templeton-Smith.